Welcome to Building LA, a podcast about the buildings and projects shaping the future of Los Angeles, hosted by me, Sam Pepper. I'm a licensed architect, developer, and project manager specializing in large, complex projects. And as you can probably tell, I'm not a lifelong Angelino. Each episode features conversations with the industry leaders driving those projects forward. We discuss what inspires them, reveal the untold stories behind these impactful projects, and talk candidly about the challenges and opportunities facing the design, architecture, and real estate industry in Los Angeles. Please subscribe to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. And if you have a few seconds, please rate the show. We really appreciate it, and we'd love to hear from you. Now, on to the episode. My guest today in the first episode of 2024 is Christy Paulson, a partner at the internationally acclaimed architecture firm Banish Architecton. Banish was founded in Stuttgart in 1989 and opened an office in Los Angeles in 1999, the office that Christy now leads. The company has a rich history and has always been on the forefront of sustainable, community-minded design, a topic we will cover in detail in this episode. Christy is one of 13 partners at the firm and is recognized as a thought leader for sustainability and is an advocate for female leaders within the A&E business. In this episode, we discuss the innovative healthy house concept, which Christy led in collaboration with other firms, the influence of Banish in the US, and how designers can think more holistically about sustainability. We also discuss the benefits of more international firms practicing Los Angeles, the perks of traveling to Germany on a regular basis, and what the future holds for Christie and Banish in Los Angeles. Spoiler alert, but change is coming in 2024. Hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Christy. Welcome to Building LA. Hi, Sam. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Of course. We're excited to have you on the show. So for those who don't know Banish Architecton, can you describe the firm? Sure. And you pronounced it correctly, so thank you. We are an architecture firm. We are in both Germany and the United States. We have a long history of really pushing innovation within sustainability, but also within architecture itself. And we continue to do that on all scales and all typologies. And we like to think of ourselves as in some ways, especially with the amount of offices we have, we have five offices. We think globally, but we act locally. All right. So Banish for me had a big impact on my architectural career when I was an undergrad because of the Genzyme Center. I think that's what it's called, the Genzyme yep. Center. Yeah. Yeah. Genzyme Center in Cambridge, in Kendall Square specifically, which was completed in 2007. That project became a focus point and a case study, I think, for a lot of students uh, in the US and around the world, and also was a reference point for a lot of architecture firms who wanted to build a sustainable office building. It really set the bar. You started at Banish in 2007. That's right, yeah. I'm curious to understand how what impact Genzyme had on your career and whether, whether it led you in part to join Banish. Well, for me, Banish, I came from Seattle. So I was working in Seattle and then moved to Los Angeles. And 
when I found out that Banish had an office in LA, which I was surprised as mm-hmm. most people are, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I was like, wow, this is incredible, you know, because they're a great international office and they do incredible work and they do sustainability in a, in a way that I felt more akin to. It wasn't a checklist sustainability. It was really truly holistic. And it's not just about the energy about a, of a building, but it's also about social sustainability, creating incredible spaces for people to live and, and, and work in. Genzyme itself, when I was in my master's degree, I, I learned learned about Banish, but Genzyme hadn't been finished at that point. I mm-hmm. think it was probably a thought at that mm-hmm. time. But I knew of uh, Banish, uh, mostly their German projects, and Nordel B was one of the projects that I thought was absolutely incredible architecturally, but also sustainability-wise. And it's a, a project in Hanover in Germany. And so that was one of the, the things that I had in my mind when I thought of Banish. When I came to LA, and, and of course Genzyme was, was uh, just finishing up at that point, Genzyme itself was certainly an incredibly impactful project for the American offices. At the time, it was just uh, Stuttgart and Los Angeles that had offices for Banish, and Genzyme really paved the way for Banish to come to the U.S. and you know establish themselves as, as an architecture office here as well. And for me, you know, especially in 2007, after it had been opened. I was actually moving on to their next American project, which they had just won a competition at Harvard University, a large science complex in Alston, and uh, it was a a million square foot project, four buildings, and that was at the time. It's evolved into something else now, Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) but that's that's what I landed in when I came to Bandish, and so we were very much coming off of the vibe of, of Genzyme, and it had become such a successful building. It was, I think, the largest building of its kind given the platinum designation mm. for LEED. Oh, wow. It wasn't the first, but it was the, the, one of the, the buildings of its scale to finally get that designation. And so it not only paved the way for Banish, but I think it was a really great building for for architecture in general yeah. to, to really look to as, as the future and how we could think about architecture differently. And you know, it was a, an important project for Banish too. I mean, that that was kind of the, the thing that set us in more of a global sphere. That project is in so many ways a, a catalyst and for, for many reasons. I think one, it sparked enthusiasm in the US around sustainability mm-hmm. with large scale buildings. Mm-hmm. It also sparked the redevelopment of Kendall Square mm-hmm. in Cambridge, which is now arguably the most successful innovation district in the world. So for a lot of reasons, I think that project, particularly in the early 2010 era, was a reference point. I hope it still is maintained as a reference point going forwards because it is spectacular. I want to touch on something you said, which was that LA was the second office (laughs) that Banish opened after their headquarters in Stuttgart. Mm -hmm. From an outside perspective, that's a that's somewhat surprising, also considering that there are a lot of East Coast projects that Banish has completed at this point. Can you just describe a little bit about how Banish arrived in LA? Sure. <laughs> yeah, it, it does seem kind of weird because we're, the first project was on the East Coast. So Stefan Banish, he actually worked in Los Angeles. In and Stefan Banish is obviously the founder. Yes, founder. Yeah. And he's also the namesake of the, the firm. And he's a, the partner in all the offices. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he had worked here in, early in his career in Los Angeles. He worked for Steve Woolley, and I believe Steve Woolley had worked for um, Craig Elwood. And most people mm-hmm. know him from the Art Center uh, architecture. And when Stefan came out here, I think he, what he enjoyed and, and loved about Los Angeles is it felt like an open landscape. Like it was really a progressive place. It still had the kind of pioneering, you know, draw the the kind of um, like that anything could go here. Like people mm. would listen and people would listen to the architecture that he wanted to do, which was very much this, you know, sustainable driven architecture. 
And at the time, I think when they won the Genzyme job, the uh, lead architect that was on Genzyme, he was married to someone here in Los Angeles. And so mm. it made sense for him to, to still lead the job, but they wanted to move to LA. So that became the, the second office for Banish and the first US office. And, and then our, our partner, our AOR on the, the job, House and Robertson is also located here in Los Angeles. So that made LA the place. And that's why LA opened as the second office. And so that was, so LA was opened what year? That was 1999. Okay, wow. Yeah. So, yeah. so Stefan was here in the 90s. I think it was here in the 80s. I think it was here. Yeah, yeah. And sorry, Stefan, if I'm getting that wrong. (laughs) That was too early, but I'm pretty sure it was the 80s or late 80s when he first came out here. Do you know if Stefan thinks about LA in the same way now? Now we're 30 (laughs) 30 years on than he did back in the 80s? Yes, I think there's still this kind of love for... I know this kind of landscape of Los Angeles that is just, it's vast, it's open, it's willing to listen, it's Mm -hmm. willing to be progressive. It doesn't have the same provincialness as maybe some other cities or other places. It's sort of what is the best and the worst of Los Angeles, right? Like we we Mm. have that openness, but we also lack a lot of structure in some ways. And that also sometimes our pitfall. And so I think he's also seen that through the years is there's a good thing with the lack of structure, but there's also sometimes, you know, the pitfalls that you run into Mm -hmm. without having that structure either. But the thing about LA is, and I think we share this, I share this, and he shares this with me. And I think with anybody who has been in our LA office is... Los Angeles is like this great city of creators and makers, and there's mm-hmm. this energy here, and you can't deny that energy, and that's super exciting. It can be super frustrating. We're all on each other's toes. There's a lot of people here, but that's also what makes it really exciting, and a lot of innovation comes out of that because it's just unlike anywhere else, and so that's what makes LA exciting. And Christy, you're from Seattle originally. Yes. Which is also different, but also a really great hub of fantastic architecture Yes, yeah. in the States. Olsen Kundig, yes. Miller Hall, there's yep. a lot of great companies that come out of there. I'm curious what your perspective on the difference in architectural culture, design culture between Pacific Northwest, Seattle, and Los Angeles, and maybe why you're based here and not there. Yeah, well, I feel like I bring a lot of my Seattleness here, though. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. We need it. <laughs> I, I think growing up in Seattle and being an architect there, or eventually being an architect there, you learn a lot about environment because it's just all around you. It's so in your face there, like, and yeah. it's and it's beautiful and it's incredible. Yeah. But it's also it's a tougher climate. It's rainier. It's darker, mm. it, and so you realize the importance of things like big windows and getting Mm. daylight in because you don't get a lot of daylight in the winter. And so you want to have that moment or you, you know, how you have North facing windows and getting that diffused light in. You learn a lot about the weather, the rain, getting ventilation, getting passive ventilation. And so all that stuff was very important to me even before I went into Banish or went into like kind of that, that Mm -hmm. whole realm of sustainability that had already sort of been in, in my spirit, if you will, and in my knowledge, just by growing up in the Northwest. And then also understanding kind of the regional aspects of building materials and, you know, what's around you and what you can use and what you can harvest and mm-hmm. what, you know, that that kind of thing was was also really important. I think what's interesting about Los Angeles and what made me excited about being here and continuing to be here as an architect is similar to Stefan. It's just, I feel like I can take that knowledge and people will listen down yeah. here about that, which is great. And they, yeah. they don't shove people away if you're from somewhere else, you know, and shove your ideas away. It, everybody's very open to progress yeah. and innovative ideas and knowledge. And that 
comes from so many different places in LA. Mm -hmm. And then I learn from so many other people here too. So I think that has been something that I find really valuable. And I probably, you know, and I also think one of the things that's interesting too is, and this also is in the Northwest, I would say, but the people who are really doing some really great stuff here are so unassuming. And mm-hmm. and LA especially comes with this like, oh, well, it's a celebrity world and, you know, sure. there's Hollywood and there's all this kind of stuff. But if you really are here and you know it and you know the people who are doing stuff here, it's almost like there's just such great creativity and interesting people doing interesting stuff here. And most of them are very unassuming and, and it's great. You can have, you can meet some Somebody new and you would never know that they have just done something totally amazing, <laughs> you know, and I yeah. think that's that's kind of an exciting thing as well, that there's a lot of energy around that. That's a key difference. I felt coming from New York to L.A. when I would meet you know, New York architects that some maybe have been very successful in their career, you, you know, pretty quickly just from <laughs> interacting with them. And I think there's there's a humbleness in L.A. and a, and a certain kind of laissez-faire attitude mm-hmm. or not that's, that's not the right term, but there is a focus on the work rather than the ego or anything like that. I want to go back to Banish and a little bit of how the company is structured. Mm-hmm. So there's multiple offices. Mm-hmm. How do the different offices operate within the larger umbrella of Banish? Well, we're all independent. So the like as uh, offices themselves are structured independently, but we all, of course, do business as Banish Architect. And so we carry a philosophy that we all mm-hmm. work together with. We share resources. But what that does is it helps us to be good local stewards, like where all of our offices are located, but also with the interchange of each other in our offices, we have that ability to, you know, recognize what's going on in Germany and they recognize what's going on in the U.S. We can exchange those things. We can really mm-hmm. talk about other ideas that are happening in elsewhere and can that work in one of our locations. Do you think that gives you an advantage over other firms having that global perspective? Particularly, I think Germany is a very progressive country, even in Europe. Mm -hmm. So does that give you an advantage to sort of see ideas that are coming out of that country? I think so, because I also, and it's not just the exchange between the US and Germany, I think because the office, it's very international in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you know, within the offices, we have people from all over the world and interns from all over the world who come and work with us. So um, it feels very international versus just purely German and American. But I think what that does is it already sets the sort of headspace of the office as being open and trying to listen to other things and uh, trying to understand, okay, well, where you come from, how does it work? Or where you come from, how does it work? And what can I learn from that? And then we also exchange quite a bit. We actually, every year, the offices all meet together in Germany and we go and we tour buildings and not just our own buildings, but we tour other architects' buildings and we we tour spaces that uh, we can learn from. And I think that's really important because I always feel like you have to experience things to Mm -hmm. see what you can do. And that makes you a better architect always because the more you experience other places, other places in the world, other architecture and not even just architecture with the capital A. I mean, even mm-hmm. just, you know, cities and how cities function or how the countryside functions or whatever it might be. Those experiences really help you think just outside your little box, right? Because if you're just designing within your own framework, you're just designing the same thing over and over and over again. And there's really no new knowledge that's coming in that you can push against whatever you may already think is right or what you Mm -hmm. think would be good for something. So that's kind of in the psyche of the whole office is to really exchange not just ideas, but really travel, go see things, you know, experience things and experience things together so you can talk about it too. I think it's so important to prioritize that in a company. And even though, you know, there's obviously costs associated with that, but 
it benefits and also it really helps with just the motivation of the entire firm mm-hmm. to allow for that tra- kind of travel to see your projects and get inspired by all the work that Bainish has done. I want to go back to a project that you had mentioned that you said was an inspiration, which is Nordell B. Mm-hmm. Had you been to that project prior to joining Bainish or did you go after as part of one of these tours? After, yeah. I had not seen it prior to working for Bainish, but I was interested in it because it was it took on a whole city block it is naturally ventilated so that's also interesting for office spaces and we just don't see that very often so nordelby is a mixed use mixed use yeah yeah and then it had this tower that kind of comes up in the middle of this huge courtyard and this very generous courtyard that people can come in and kind of um, almost like an oasis from the the city Mm. itself and it was also exceptional architecture because I think there's something that's exciting like as architects is you know we we obviously were were very interested in like making sure it's sustainable it's energy efficient we have good spaces but we're also creating architecture right like we're not just creating like because if we if we did like a an energy efficient building and we just did kind of the checklist energy building itself it might be a really boring building that nobody yeah. wants to go into right yeah. so uh, what i loved i think that also attracted me to banish originally was the way that sustainability was done is it never forgot the social sustainability and how important things are to the urban fabric and how people use the space and how not just users but the civic spaces that that are born out of some of the projects as well so it's a very holistic understanding of what architecture means to its surrounding context. And we often talk about it more as ecological design versus sustainability because sustainability, I feel like now is just sort of a, it's a term that has been so used and overused and overdefined in some ways that it's really about creating ecologies and being good to the ecologies that are existing around you and and contributing to that in some way. Mm -hmm. It also strikes me that Banish has a very pragmatic approach to those high ideals. Mm-hmm. When I look at a Gubanish project, it's always pretty clear the decisions that were made that are rigorous. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of decoration and extraneous factors that are purely aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Everything has a function. Right. And that function may be to be a good neighbor to the community, but it still has clear moves. Mm-hmm and not anything that is purely for aesthetic reasons. So it's an interesting concept, and I think something that is a thread throughout the entire kind of Banish organization, Mm -hmm. uh, which I love. How would you say that Banish has influenced your outlook as an architect as a whole? Part of what has been great about being with Banish and running a Banish office is it's almost the exchange that we have with young architects and bringing architects into the world. I think you know, more than any other office I've ever worked for and been part of, Banish, we really do have a stronghold in taking young architects. We have a high influx of, of young architects and we we make them architects. We really spend time to get them to understand what architecture is. And to me, I think that exchange is so important and that has really influenced, I mean, it's influenced me because when I first joined Banish, I was not young, young, I was probably 30, mm-hmm. uh, 29, 30, but I felt like I had a lot of other architects within the firm, you know, well, Stefan himself, of course, but also other architects within the firm that I could really learn from and who expanded my understanding of what an architect is and what we are responsible for and what we need to do. And then I've sort of given that back. Now I'm a partner and I'm having, you know, I have my own staff and we have our staff that comes through and we have to pay all that forward and trying to 
teach them like that architecture is more than just mm -hmm. a, a pretty object or it's more than mm -hmm. just a fanciful idea. Like how do you take that idea and really mm -hmm. create great architecture out of it? And I think that's definitely been something that's influenced me in my whole entire career because as I took that uh, other jobs or like mm -hmm. with other companies, I've also mentored a lot of other staff through uh, those offices mm -hmm. as well. And I feel like that's been something that Banish really helped influence into me how important that is. Do you feel like at Banish with the younger staff, the ideas are democratic and that great ideas can come from anywhere and it's really the responsibility of the leadership to draw out great ideas from the younger staff and then be editors for the wider organization? I mean, that's part of it. I think there's, but there's also just a lot of learning. I, I yeah. think, I think, and it depends on, I mean, we get students from all over the world, so it, it, they bring different things, sure. which is really interesting as well, because you can kind of understand what their education was and, and how, how they see architecture and how they see the world and how they see their place in architecture. And so sometimes we just have discussions. We just sit there in the office and talk about architecture because I want to understand where their perspectives are coming from. I want to understand what's driving them. What I, the only thing I would, I ever get nervous about with young Younger architects is when they don't know why they're doing architecture. I'm like, there's got to be something, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so I'm always trying to pull like, what is what is interesting to you about architecture? What are you trying to achieve with it? Those are really fruitful discussions. I learn a lot from them. I think when we talk about architecture, and I feel like it's it how quickly you get old in the profession. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, I'm not the young one anymore. Okay, I guess I have some, you know, some things to share as well. But it's, we have great discussions about how, how architecture impacts people's lives, how it's important, where architecture is in the moment. And I think I've now been in architecture long enough where we've seen the trends change and things move. And mm -hmm. I find that really fascinating. Hmm. True or false, European firms have had a hard time getting a foothold in LA. <laughs> wow. I, yeah. I mean, I can only really speak for the Banish side of it mm -hmm. since we've been doing this for like the last uh, four or five years back in L.A. I think COVID sort of kicked around a few things sure. <laughs> in, in, in everybody's lives. When I first started with Banish back in 2007, I think at that time, because the sustainable world was such a, a I wouldn't say a new thing, but to the profession, it was still trying to find itself and it was trying to figure mm -hmm. out you know, where it was going. And so there was a lot of openness to European firms, because I think they were maybe doing some things that the U.S. hadn't done yet. And so there was this openness to bring in a lot of thought and that type of thing. But, you know, the world's caught up and like everybody's doing, you know, really great architecture and and there's, you know, people have moved into the, the local scene and they come into the other offices. And so I think maybe it's been a little bit harder economically, you know, our economy, whenever the economy kind of uh, tightens up a little bit, nobody wants to pay the dollars for, right. for bigger firms or firms on, you know, that aren't local or something yeah. like that. So that can be a little bit uh, difficult, but, um, but LA is a tough place because it's full of every type of architect from sole proprietors, boutique architects, corporate architects, large international practices. I mean, there's just a lot of competition here too, but there's also a lot of great work and great things to do. Yeah. So I feel like there's room for all of us, but yeah, it's it's not always easy. No, I, <laughs> The reason I ask is because it strikes me as being in comparison to New York, Boston, a lot of other major cities, you have major firms like Banish, Grimshaw, Hawkins Brown is now here, mm -hmm. Foster I hear just opened up a small office. But they're all small offices, at least right now, mm -hmm. with maybe one, maybe two projects underway, but they don't have a larger footprint at this mm -hmm. time. I do agree that 
with the economy at where it is, developers, city agencies are more likely to take a safer approach. Mm-hmm. Regardless of cost, actually, just I think the perception is that if the company has 200 people in downtown LA and they have been in LA for 20 years, that's a safer approach than a company that has maybe 200 people in Germany or England or wherever it might be, mm-hmm. but 10 right. in LA. And right. I think there's a perception. I hope that LA can attract more firms and that there's developers and, and others that, that are open to giving opportunities to European firms, Asian firms, whatever it may be, because there's so much to do in LA. And I think those ideas that you're talking about could really be used here. Yes. Um, Next question. When you are in Germany, which Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've gone to a few times now. Yeah, many. uh, (laughs) Often. (laughs) Question for those who are looking to maybe put a destination on their calendars in 2024. Where do you love to travel in Mm. Germany? Well, I tend to travel mostly to Stuttgart and Munich because we have offices there. But I will say one of my favorite places to go in Germany is Hamburg. Mm. And it's in northern Germany. It's right on the coast. And maybe it's because of my coastal nature. I just love water cities, like cities on the water. But Hamburg's just a beautiful place. There's a couple of projects that that Banish has done there as well. There's It was the Unilever headquarters in Hafen City, which is a new development on the Elbe River. And then there's also one of my favorite projects Spanish has done, and it's very hard to find for people if they're looking for it, but it's called Housem House. And it's this building within a building. And it was like a, a basically a, a new construct of um, a, a small building in an atrium space there. Sure. And it's an exhibit space and there's like a little cafe um, at the top, but it is like just a beautiful, precious building that I just find absolutely stunning. And that's another great, great building to go to. All right. And I'm curious, is the primary language spoken in the office German or? Well, in the German offices, it's it's still mostly German, but also there's a lot of English as well. Uh, The American offices, definitely English. And then I think when we're working on a big project, like when I originally came to Banish and I was working on the Harvard project, we were in Stuttgart, in LA, and then that's when the Boston office started as well, because we built Mm. a Boston office there for the project. And then now they're, of course, taken off with, with their own office. And when we work on those American projects or North American projects, oftentimes, of course, English is the spoken language sure. because we're we're talking to consultants, clients, that type of thing. So, yeah, then it becomes sure. English. <laughs> so, Christy, when I reached out to you to talk to you about coming onto the, the podcast, we were discussing what project to talk about and you had mentioned Healthy House. Mm-hmm. So... For our listeners, can you just explain a little bit about what is Healthy House? Sure. So we um, it started as a competition, and our LA office engaged in it. And as we built a team around it, it was a competition where we were taking a very large piece of land, and it was an old agricultural site. So there's a lot of pesticides. You know, there's you mm-hmm. know some toxins within the the site itself, and the competition was to essentially re-envision how you would create a campus there. And this happened to be a private company, so it was, a, it was an office campus, but we kind of felt like as we were looking at this, we should, especially with the team that we put together, we should look at this as really sort of a, a construct of how we, we look at the future of building. Because it's very rare that you get an open site and mm-hmm. you get to think about it from the ground up. 
And with our partners that we brought into the competition, it was uh, Studio MLA, uh, Sherwood uh, Engineers, Loiso Subalode, uh, AEI, JAMA, and Arup as well. And I think we had all the right thinkers at the table to really think about how we could establish a project that isn't just environmentally good, but it kind of solved a lot of things. It was, it, we, we sort of created this triangle of the healthy house, which was being good stewards of the site and really understanding the site and what we could do to reinvigorate it, rewild it, bring it back to uh, a place of where it was giving, it could sequester carbon again, it could, you know, do all the good things that we need sites to do. And then looking at the building itself and of course thinking about what is the right way to build buildings and over time and kind of materiality. And I know circularity and regeneration are talked about a lot these days, but we were, you know, certainly looking into that, but how regional materials could work, how um, we could look at a building that is, could be passively cooled and have natural ventilation and a campus that could do that. And then also the third kind of thing was to look at the materials. We look at construction and we all go through this process when we build buildings, but like the amount of toxins that are just in construction materials mm -hmm. and, and the workers that have to deal with that. And so how could we build things that we're not trying to put those toxins onto the people who are actually building the buildings and, and, and having to manage those new projects. So, you know, we all put our heads together and, you know, created this whole design concept where it was a project that also rooted itself back into California architecture, kind of the I kind of think of the case study homes as sort of like the indoor outdoor living, the promise of California. We live yeah. in this incredible environment, right? Like we can we can live outdoors. Like we have that ability to open up our windows, mm -hmm. and you can have a very small space here in Los Angeles. But if you have a nice patio, it just kind of doubles your space, and you can enjoy it most of the year. And uh, and so we thought, wouldn't that be wonderful for like an office campus or a, a university campus or whatever it might be? And how could we imagine you know the landscaping to really be part of that in a way that helps support it and help support the environment as well. And so we, we talked a lot about bringing everything back to kind of, you know, the native native landscape of California, everything from the oak savannas to um, the riparian woodlands to um, the sage scrub, the coastal sage scrub, mm -hmm. which uh, we see quite often, but also California is known for agriculture as well. So mm -hmm. how can we do that in a way that is more sustainable and invigorates the soil versus kills the soil, right? So we looked at all of those four things within the site and we created this, it was about 300,000 square feet of building, but it was really building and landscape, building and landscape everywhere. Right. And then how to bring the ecologies back within the space. Uh, this particular piece of land was pretty close to like, you know, wildlife areas and that type of thing. So we wanted to sure. make sure that those were also brought back and we didn't have this barren sort of wasteland of agricultural lands. Hmm. Then we looked at, at, at that kind of process. And then with the building itself, we really focused on the natural ventilations, but also outside being able to take building program and putting it outside. So it's like, like, well, we could have outdoor conference areas. We could mm. have, you know, like, why not, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, we could meet there. We don't always have to be inside a building. And that could also reduce the amount of square footage we have to use for our buildings if we actually take advantage of the exterior landscape and use those as actual program spaces. So that's how Healthy House was born. And it's been kind of like a, almost like a case study for us. Yeah. And in, in a way to think about the future of larger scale building and campus building. Also, we, we remain pretty low scale. And that in part, you know, I know there's, you know, in cities, you kind of want the density and the density is always very good. But I think for this particular 
project, we were looking at, you know, maybe three to four story buildings, low, low level buildings. So they could really take advantage of taking the architecture and the buildings were sort of, instead of it just extruded up, they kind of slip and slide to create outdoor covered areas. The building actually shades mm. some of the outdoor spaces and, we want to make the architecture be part of that that mm. whole process as well. And so we felt we could do that at a really nice low-level landscape. Now, you could probably go up really high if you want to, but the zoning in this particular case couldn't, wouldn't allow. But but we also kind of like the low-level buildings, too, because they settle nicely into the landscape as well, and they're sure. kind of snug within the spaces. And, yeah, and so that's kind of the, the impetus or the, the, yeah, the healthy house. So it sounds incredible. I've got a lot of questions on healthy house. I'll start with one. <laughs> In looking at the construction materials, this has been a big topic conversation from many years now and mass timber is now at the forefront of that conversation. Mm -hmm. Did you discover anything during this process about selecting construction materials that maybe surprised you? Any lessons learned that we should incorporate going forwards? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we definitely looked at a full timber solution mm -hmm. and that was one of the original thoughts was that, okay, this would be all timber construction. And then we also looked at though, when we started, you know, there, I mean, you really can't beat timber when it comes to carbon and right. it, it just, all the other, if you look at concrete and steel, you're just, you're not going to beat the value of timber construction. That's why it is in the forefront. But we also looked at a hybrid system, which was steel structure with CLT. And that's also an interesting possibility. And there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, steel is well recycled throughout the, U you know, throughout the U.S. and not actually throughout the world. It remains circular if we keep it going, mm. right? If we keep recycling it and rebuilding it and stuff like that. But obviously, it, it takes a lot of energy to heat it and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and to make it. And so we, we definitely had to consider that. But it's also thinking about regions and what's close to your region too. You know, timber is one of those things which for me, I think it's amazing. It's such a beautiful construction type. Everybody loves wood. I mean, just the, the quality of wood is, is pretty mm -hmm. incredible. And then, and there's so many advantages to it, but I also grew up in the Northwest and I'm always very conscious a little bit about wood because while it is a renewable material, it's a slowly renewable material. It doesn't renew quickly. And I very much grew up where forests were clear-cutted for wood all the time. And you be driving, you know, to the mountains and what used to be these corridors of huge evergreen mm. trees became like, wait, there's this, all this light coming in because they just clear cut it mm. like mass swaths of things. And so I always think about like, you know, these are great resources we have, but we also have to make sure that we don't just annihilate our forests in because now everybody wants to have a timber building. And so that's why we, we wanted to look at steel and other things to say, well, maybe there, you know, are there other things that are maybe close by that are in proximity that are more regional that we could also consider. And so we didn't make a judgment call at the end of the day. It was sort of like we, we created a, more data and then we showed a couple of different options of what the campus mm -hmm. could do. And I'm sure that's going to change through time because resources are going to change through time as well. And then if we can get electric powered trucks to ship things and then we have fully renewable electricity sources then it's going to be it, yeah. it, it's going to be less detrimental to to actually be able to ship through electric versus having to have gas guzzling trucks come you know mm -hmm. from elsewhere so things are going to change you know as we move into the future about how we how we calculate kind of like the harm it's doing or like how sure. how we calculate the carbon footprint of all these uh, materials but i think what's really great about the timber industry right now and like moving forward with that is it's pushing the steel and concrete industry to figure their yeah. their stuff out, right? They're like, oh no, people don't right. want to use us because of all the carbon impacts. So, okay, now we need to think about doing this differently and can yeah. we do this differently? So 
I love it because I think it pushes innovation, right? It pushes innovation on all levels. And I think right now it almost feels like every building is going to be timber, like in the next 20 years. And it might be, but... Well, it feels but, like every, yeah. <laughs> every major tenant wants yeah. a mass timber building. Exactly. That's certainly... But I, with everything, even, you know, lithium batteries, there's a, there is a fear that if you go too quickly in the other direction and there isn't the infrastructure set up for an enormous amount of mass timber buildings or enormous mass of electric vehicles, then suddenly there's not going to be the resources that are going to be sustainably managed enough to provide that material. Right. And so the industries need to catch up. Exactly. And I suspect we're in that process now where suddenly there's a lot more requirements for timber. And as a whole, as a country, we need to figure out, okay, how do we produce it in a sustainable way mm-hmm. and to not make sure there's not impacts on the back end, which even though we're all excited about mass timber, could affect us in the future. So, That's right. The other question I had was, you mentioned that, and I think this is a really great point that often gets forgotten, the health and well-being of the folks who actually build the buildings. Yes. Can you just dive a little bit more into some of the findings and maybe solutions that Healthy House was proposing? We've all been on construction sites. We know how... extremely dusty they are yep. and I think we know with concrete the whole silica issues and mm-hmm. you know this is pretty detrimental to obviously to people's health and so part of what we're trying to do with healthy houses to try to find materials that wouldn't off gas or like create that amount of dust and so even like things like drywall we we're trying to reduce that even within inside the building and can we come up with wood paneling systems or, or other systems that you could actually prefabricate and bring mm-hmm. out and so they're done under different conditions because oftentimes when everything is cut out on site I don't think there's the same precautions that are often taken versus like doing it in a factory and prefabricating and then bringing it out so those are the, some of the things that we looked at within healthy house and I think you know similar to you know, when LEED came on to the, the scene back, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, you know, as architects, we can do what we can to design better buildings and specify materials and that type of thing. But it also really depends on our great partnership with our contracting mm-hmm. partners to be able to carry that through in the construction process. I think we're, that's something we're also going to have to think about as we look at circularity and we look mm-hmm. at regeneration is really having great, the construction industry really being a great partner within that to figure out how we can make this work for everyone, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, the, and certainly the people and the, um, the subs that they employ as well. You also mentioned the use of passive systems for heating, cooling, mm-hmm. sunlight, shade. Are you surprised by how small of an impact those ideas have had on the wider Arctic community, <laughs> yeah. particularly in Southern California? I'm always yeah, yeah. a little bit surprised. And I work primarily on commercial projects, so you know, I may be a little out of the loop here. But from my perspective, we're in a climate that is really pleasant to be in mm-hmm. for 90% of the year. Don't really need mechanical HVAC. Uh, you can use shade. A lot of the buildings that were built in the 30s didn't have insulation for a reason. They just had a lot of windows you could yep. open. <laughs> Are we moving in the right direction? <laughs> well, I think we moved in the wrong direction for a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a really wrong direction. And unfortunately, I think it just comes down to dollars and cents. You know, right. that's why we didn't see like a big flux of natural ventilation and things like that because operable windows cost more money. You know, mm-hmm. if it comes to the commercial size, mm-hmm. it's easier just to put a, a hermetically sealed current wall system up right. and be done with it and walk away and put a big mechanical system into it. So it's funny because, you know, I feel like you know, 
a lot of what we're pushing is in, in, in a sense like new, like we're talking about stuff that's been going on for thousands of years. Like I said, before exactly. air conditioning came into play, everybody was using passive systems. Depending on what climate they were in, they had to, mm -hmm. to use whatever means that they needed to, to make things either cooler or warmer or more habitable. And the thing that I think that is happening though right now, and I hope it goes in this direction, I really, really hope it goes and, and moves. COVID had this really m interesting moment on the architecture and real estate industry, and it has to have the real estate industry to get affected in order for the architecture to finally <laughs> get a voice a little bit. <laughs> that, um, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, in COVID, people really paid attention to public health and how important it is to have natural ventilation, have spaces that people could go outside, people could be indoor and outdoor. And it all of a sudden made people question our you know, our hermetically sealed buildings that we have predominantly everywhere throughout the United mm -hmm. States. Do people really want to go back to these towers that you can't open a window or you're in this mechanical system that's just recirculating and, mm -hmm. and recirculating air from other places? And so my hope is that in some ways, and I've seen this a little bit in the real estate world, now property is more valuable if it has outdoor space, if it right. has operable windows, oh, yeah. or if it has fresh ventilation. And it's like, yes, that's great, because if it all of a sudden becomes more valuable, then more people will want it and they'll understand the value of it. Because usually... Natural ventilation gets value engineered out mm -hmm. because, oh, it's expensive. Upper windows are expensive, you know, yeah, trying to, it, you yeah. know. It's so funny. I mean, all the case study houses from the 50s, 60s that are the bedrock of what people think of as residential design in LA but mm -hmm. and beyond was all based on passive ventilation. Mm -hmm. And it just seems like that's fallen off the priority list a little bit. And I hope it gets picked back up, I both in the too. residential yeah. space and, and in the commercial space. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that Healthy House, the site that you were working on was 20 acres, I believe? Yeah, it's, yeah around 20 acres. Yep. What is achievable on 20 acres in terms of creating an ecology? Because it's a large area, but it's not an enormous area. Mm -hmm. But also I've worked on much, much smaller projects that are just a single building where you know, you can put in plants that help the migratory paths of butterflies, for example. Right. So are you able to create a microecology on 20 acres? Yes, and a lot of them, actually. A lot mm. of different microecologies. And I think that's where was great with working with Studio MLA is they, mm. they you know, almost looked at the site and said, okay, this area can be all riparian woodlands because it's by the, the water creeks. And we were also managing the water on the site too. A lot of people in California, especially in Southern California, forget that it actually does rain here. And when it rains, it pours, it <laughs> you know, we don't get rain for like eight months, but then all of a sudden January, February come and we get these crazy torrential downpours. Mm -hmm. And then everybody has tarps over their houses because their roof is leaking and they, they didn't think they were going to yep. have to worry about it. Yep. And so water conveyance is really important on sites and having that mass flush of water going through is not great for anything. So if you have the plantings and the structural soils within the space that you can create that help to slow those things down and actually use the, the water for the site and not just like run it through a conveyance and out into the ocean, like that helps with our, you know, restoring the site and, and, you know, being good to our watersheds. So I think a lot is achievable in something like 20 acres. You could have microecologies everywhere. You could have the a little agricultural zone where, you know, creating biodiversity within the, the agricultural zone within a site. And then the idea with this particular project was to create, since they had dining facilities, to create kind of a farm to table sort of environment. Like mm -hmm. you could use the food from that. your land and actually serve it in your cafeteria or like for your employees or for your students. So in that kind of a site, you could do quite a bit. We had a lot of fun just kind of thinking of all the different 
options that we have. And yes, we're like bringing the bunnies back, <laughs> bringing the, the birds. We want to bring the butterflies or give them pathways, the monarchs, you know, before they go up north or wherever, yeah. you know, it, it, all of that we felt like we could manage even within that one site. And of course, the more you have, the, the better. But I think biodiversity for, for, you know, for landscape is really important too, like making sure there's a diverse, a lot of diverse plant types and that type of thing too. I think we're learning more and more about how, how forests and landscapes work where they need that biodiversity mm. to really flourish. Mm. This particular project, is it going to be constructed or? It's shelved right now, so okay. we hope so at some point. But it, like like a lot of things, everybody's pulled back a little bit on, mm. on on big plans. But that's why we felt like you know this is we should look at it more as a case study because we don't want yeah. this to go away. I think that's also getting back to banish what's so important about the office and what we've done and and what has been instilled in me is with banish we did a lot of competitions, primarily being you know a European firm. We their competitions are are prevalent everywhere in Europe, and we don't win them all. But we experiment on all of our competitions because it's a moment where you can really put that innovation out there. And even though you don't win on that project, all that knowledge doesn't go away. You, mm -hmm. you might get the, another project down the road and it's like, well, we already did all this research and now mm -hmm. we can apply it. And what's great is when you get that project that you can actually apply to, you usually don't have time to do that research because mm -hmm. it's like, go, go, go. Mm -hmm. And so we've always managed our like our kind of thinking research competitions as sort of our think tank <laughs> mm -hmm. that we put a lot of effort into and we never just let it go to waste. It's always, it gets put back into our actual projects. So because you brought up architectural competitions, mm -hmm. it's a topic of conversation both as a developer and when I was an architect. Mm -hmm. What is the fair way to run a competition for architecture firms? <laughs> because a lot of resources get spent. Yeah, stipends, big ones. You know, and so not, what, what, what would you say? What would you say is a fair stipend for a, let's say, it's a hundred thousand square foot commercial project? What's a mm. fair stipend for a month long? For a month long competition. Competition. I would say, ideally, like probably around the hundred thousand, but I'd say 50 to a hundred thousand yeah. because that's what it takes. And it's, right. and it's not, um, what people forget is that usually we're, we're also working with teams. So we have consultants. So it's not just the architect firm. It's all labor. It's all like time and effort and mm -hmm. that process. And of course, yes, we, we generate some deliverables, obviously renderings and yeah. sometimes yeah. models and sometimes uh, diagrams and narratives and that type of thing. I think, yeah, definitely running architectural competitions, giving fair stipends is important. Competitions are done differently everywhere so we've been in competitions where they've been really excellent and it's like you know well organized and yeah people are paid for their ideas and they're respectful of it we've also been in competitions where we felt like we were used for our ideas and then they they knew what architect they wanted and mm -hmm. then they did a competition just to get ideas and they took everybody's ideas and then just gave it to the architect they wanted to work with. That feels really terrible yeah. <laughs> on many levels. So those are really tough competitions, but we've had a few of those where we felt like that was a little bit backhanded. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say definitely that's why at least payment, like, you know, getting paid for your time and fairly paid for your time and your ideas is really important because I know every architecture firm who does a competition, they put so much into it. It's not just us, every, any, any architecture firm, yeah. because it's an important moment for you to really show yourself. And architects love to, you know, to show our ideas. But the thing is, that's the only thing we sell. We don't sell material goods, right? Like we don't sell right. things, we sell our ideas. And so those are really important that people actually pay for those, yeah, yeah. you know? No, it's, it's interesting. And I would assume any architect listening is like, 
doing a high five to, to you virtually <laughs> right now, uh, Christy. But yeah, it's something that we talk about on the developer side a lot is you know, the value of design competitions. They are incredibly valuable for a developer to understand and gain ideas and understand and start working with a number of architects to look at what's the best fit from a personality standpoint, collaboration standpoint. But the economics of the deal often make mean that doing competition is not viable unless you're paying too little to the mm, architect. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's a kind of a constant debate and something that will continue to be a debate going forwards. Sure. Healthy House is a case study. I'm assuming it continues to be a case study for Banish, Studio MLA, the other firms are involved. LA is its own ecology. I'm curious if you were to change the urban landscape of Los Angeles. There's a lot of work to do in the city. Mm-hmm. What's a couple of things that jump out to you? Well, the first thing that jumps out to me is if you look at Los Angeles from any tower or hill, you just see this massive just... Mm -hmm. buildings and landscape everywhere. So we have a lot of infrastructure here in LA and a lot of it is pulling a lot of energy that probably is unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing I would think of is like looking at the building stock that we have and how can we fix some of it so that it's not just uh, exceedingly just drawing energy out of the the grid and our power sources and that type of thing. I think there's a lot of things we can do with the existing infrastructure from a facade point of view. I know it's it's probably expensive, but I always look at these like facades. I'm like, gosh, you just like rip (laughs) off the curtain wall. I mean, keep the bones. It's fine. The structure is great. But rip off those curtain walls. Again, like having some natural ventilation, changing the systems inside it and we can make such better energy efficient buildings Mm -hmm. and we don't always have to make them new right like everybody loves to make new and we all love to make new buildings but we can also correct the ones that are are just the bad energy sucks there's there's so many there's so many glass office buildings that were built in la i think in the 80s and 90s where the facade is still the exact same and it's weird when you have a glass facade that has a patina on it yes i know and you you can see like the condensation in the like you can tell like it's not working like none of it is. there's a certain weird beauty uh, to it but i'm sure it's a horrible experience on the inside yeah exactly and nobody really wants to be inside those spaces and they mold and they're like just all it's, it's a problem so that's the first thing i probably would look at for for the buildings. And we also have the urban landscape. I mean, there's certainly trees, trees, trees. <laughs> like yeah. We need more canopy cover. Like yeah. it, it's, it's hot here. And then of course we have the heat island effect. Right. And so if we don't have enough canopy for trees, the heat island effect's just terrible. Yeah. And I don't know if you have children, but when I first had my son here in Los Angeles, I remember trying to take a stroller and, mm-hmm. you know, going through the sidewalks of Los Angeles. I just remember it was just so inhospitable. And I was just frustrated because it, you know, if I wanted to walk to a park, the journey between my house and the park was mm-hmm. like pretty inhospitable. Like there weren't enough trees. There was broken sidewalks everywhere. It's hot, unnecessarily hot. Mm-hmm. And that can all be solved by just, you know, having, you yeah. know, great trees and vegetation. And that seems like a pretty simple fix, actually. But yeah. we've got such a big city, so maybe it's a lot. Of, I mean, I know it's a lot of work, but it's a simple fix. It's funny. It would change dramatically the experience of Los Angeles. I yeah. live on right around 3rd and La Brea. Mm-hmm. And La Brea is going through a bit of a resurgence right now. There's a lot of new retail coming in, which is great. But it's still a extremely wide street, mm-hmm. which is six lanes during rush hour. There's ability to put a median in. Yeah. That could be even have a walking path within it. Mm-hmm. I look at cities like Mexico City and some of the streets that have, you know, an occupiable median where you can walk in the center and they have these incredible trees, mm-hmm. provide shade for the entire 
entire street, yeah. more or less. Amazing. And obviously, it costs a lot of money, but that kind of level of innovation and just a willingness from the city would be great to see going forwards because I think that would dramatically change your experience of walking around Los Angeles. It would also then create more opportunities for small businesses to take up abandoned retail units. It would really change a lot. It create our neighborhoods and bring back our neighbors. So they yeah. aren't just these like artillery thoroughfares. Yeah. They, uh, they feel it, walkable. Yeah. It, it still surprises me no end that you have these neighborhoods where every single house seems to be about $2.5 million. Mm -hmm. And then you go to the commercial stretch within that neighborhood and it kind of looks like it hasn't changed for 20 years. Yeah, it's pretty worn down. And, and it's worn down. Yeah, it doesn't look and very friendly. <laughs> no, because everyone's jumping in the car yeah. and they're going to Century City or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that ability just to create a pathway from the residential neighborhood to the local park commercial stretch whatever it may be mm -hmm. that will will certainly help i think there's, there's some areas of la which are more successful than others you know larchmont which is obviously a very wealthy area but that one stretch is a very walkable space right. yeah great commercial zone yeah yep. some, some place on the east side some place on the west side but the majority of the areas and i would say where i am in sort of mid wilshire yeah not not really not so much <laughs> <laughs> not really um yeah so a lot of work to do definitely we are releasing this episode at the start of 2024. So looking ahead, Christy, what are your goals for this year? Well, there's big changes. So I know we've talked a lot about Banish and obviously spent a lot of time with the firm. But, you know, I'm taking Banish LA office and making it into my own with my husband. So we are going to go from Banish LA to Paulson Poe projects. And that is for many reasons. I, Stefan Banish is stepping back a little bit uh, mm -hmm. from his duties. And so... Like I said, all of our offices are independently owned. And so, you know, it sort of gives the freedom to either do your own thing or you can stay, you know, I'm sure the German offices will certainly stay together uh, mm -hmm. as Banish is pretty well known there and throughout Europe. I think in LA, because it is such a, we're a little bit of an outlier, <laughs> if yeah. you will. And I've been here for about 16 years. So as my husband, it just made sense for us to continue it, but to continue it as our thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it gave us a really great opportunity to do that. So that's happening in 2024, which is really exciting. It's also scary and all, all the above, sure. but um, but mostly exciting. And, and we're, we're looking forward to continuing everything that we've learned and done and, and pushing that into, into our office. So Paulson Poey will be essentially an evolution of the Banish office, which you and your husband run right now. Yeah, yeah. So my husband's a director at Banish right now. So And the projects you pursue as Paulson Poey, will that be similar? Are there some projects you have in the pipeline which you can talk about? Yeah, we have, we have some in the pipeline. Most of them are smaller. We would love to do the same projects that we're doing with Banish. I think what you touched on earlier is there's always this perception of like, just because you're small, you can't do big work. But what's interesting in my my 20 plus year career in architecture and this building is one of them, you need about a, a, a team of like five really great architects to do even big projects. And yes, the team grows when you get into construction documents and you do the, the big thing, but it doesn't take an office of 200 to do an exceptional large project. It takes really great thinkers and that could yeah. be two to five to seven. Like it doesn't take a massive office to do that. I would completely agree because you also... I think some folks forget that you have the consultant team. Mm -hmm. And so your architecture team, even for a project, and yeah, we're sitting in a very large one that you worked on, is, you know, you may have five architects, six architects on a project of this scale, but you also have an enormous amount of consultants there. And 
a lot of architecture firms that are starting out and you're not starting out your architecture firm you're kind of just evolving an, an existing one <laughs> um but the experience a lot of people have when they're working for other firms is with large projects mm -hmm. and so that's actually sorry in some ways the easiest project to then jump into right but of course those skills and talents translate to us to smaller projects as well is there a, an official launch date launch well we were kind of like in the new year okay <laughs> and it's sort of <laughs> okay we're hoping like yeah january 1st 2nd but um it, we'll see if we can get our website up by then <laughs> okay so we'll see on when this when this is released where it may maybe is just about to get launched or was launched uh, a few days ago so that's exciting christy last last question what are your three favorite buildings or places in la oh wow okay oh my gosh in light of discussion about the case study homes, definitely the stall house. I, I think mm. I haven't been there in a while, but when I first moved to Los Angeles, I lived in West Hollywood. So it was right above uh, West Hollywood. And I remember, I think Julie Schulman did the mm -hmm. photograph of the building. So that was what was imprinted in my head was this photograph of the woman with the ball light and you look over the grid of Los mm -hmm. Angeles below. And so I was always kind of captivated by that picture. And then when I went to the stall house, I just realized how brilliant it really is. I mean, it's, again, it's kind of what we talked about, this indoor, outdoor. It's very small, but the amount of outdoor space you have, it makes it feel big. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and it's very, you know, simple, straightforward, but beautifully sighted. And it's just a simple articulation. And it felt very much like Los Angeles to me. I don't know, it just has this great moment. Yeah. But as places only because I go here a lot with my family, is just Griffith Park. I mean, yeah. I, I think one of those things where it's very easy if you've never been to Los Angeles or if you are from elsewhere, you think of it as this vast concrete jungle. And there's certainly parts of that. But a lot of people don't understand that Griffith Park just sits right there, like, you know, at the edge, at the northern edge of Los Angeles. And it's just, I mean, we, we've gone there over and over, and we still haven't gone on all the trails. I mean, there's just so many. It's massive. Yeah. And so it's amazing just to wander through, to hike through. And then the observatory is absolutely stunning. And then being up there and being perched up there and being able to look over Los Angeles is always a really exciting moment because you kind of see this incredible city that yeah. is just goes from far and wide. I mean, you can't even see the edge of, of Los Angeles at that point. Third, gosh, that's tough. I mean, I feel like I'm sitting in one of them. <laughs> Okay. But, this, but this is sort of a, a special, a more a, a special place. But um, we're sitting in the the Spruce Goose office for, for our <laughs> listeners. This, uh, yeah, I mean, this place obviously holds a very special place in my heart. But I feel like there's uh, the other thing is like it's a huge timber structure in Los Angeles, and you would never think that this would exist in a place like Los mm -hmm. Angeles. It's truly a, a special building, the history of it, and. I'm just looking at these glue lamps going, oh my God, they're just massive. They're absolutely massive. And so, it, yeah, it's certainly a special place. I wish it was a, you know, I'm glad Google has it. They're amazing mm -hmm. client and also um, stewards of this building, but I wish it was open to the public sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so people could, could, more people could come and see the building, but it is definitely a special place here in LA. Okay, so that's your number three? Sure, that's my number three. All right. <laughs> well, Chrissy, thank you so much for joining the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sam. This was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. As a bonus, if you have a couple of minutes, please consider rating the podcast and writing us a brief review. We'd really appreciate it. And of course, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to email me at sam at buildinglapodcast.com. Hope you tune in again soon.